Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. This sermon was preached on June 11th, 2017 at Hampton United Methodist Church. And the sermon is mostly about a concept that often gets maligned in evangelical Christian circles. I'm talking about lifestyle evangelism. Call it whatever you like. What I mean by that is the way we live our lives is a powerful, important, and necessary witness for Jesus Christ. Now, we also have to use words, but the way we live is absolutely essential. And if we're going to be effective witnesses, then it all begins with being in love with Jesus Christ. I want us to be in love with Jesus and, and, and then witnessing through our lives, through our actions, through our words will come much easier. That's what this sermon is about. And our text is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17, which I'm going to read right now. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Last Wednesday... A nominee for Deputy Budget Director named Russell Vaught appeared before a Senate panel. It was this panel's job to either recommend or not recommend that this nominee be confirmed by the Senate. This man, Mr. Vaught, got into trouble, however, because of something he wrote last year In a controversy surrounding his alma mater, he went to Wheaton College, an evangelical Christian college in Chicago. And the controversy at his alma mater had something to do with Islam. And this is what he wrote in a blog post. He wrote that Muslims have a deficient theology and that they do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son. And they stand condemned. One senator on the panel called these words indefensible, hateful, Islamophobic, and an insult to over a million, a billion, excuse me, billion Muslims throughout the world. So the senator said that he could not recommend Mr. Vaught be confirmed. Which reminds me that I, I shouldn't plan on serving any, in any, um, you know, high government posts because there's no way I could get confirmed. In writing what he wrote, Mr. Vaught was simply affirming classic Christian doctrine, which all Orthodox Christians throughout all church history have affirmed, that salvation is available through Christ 
alone. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter said in Acts, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven, uh, under heaven, given to mankind by which we must be saved. So it's not just Muslims, but all of humanity, regardless of their religious beliefs and, and or, or lack thereof, who will miss out on eternal life unless they repent and give their lives to Christ. Even the Bible says that even those uh, nominal Christians whose lives show no evidence of, of repentance are also in grave danger. The good news, of course, is that God loves every one of these unbelievers and God loves every one of these nominal believers. And God is working right now through his Holy Spirit to woo them, to, to bring them into a saving relationship with him through Christ. In fact, he's calling people like Mr. Vaught and like you and me and like these young people who were baptized and confirmed earlier, like all Christians everywhere. He's calling them to play a role in bringing people into a saving relationship with him through Christ. So yes, our mission is urgent because like Russell Vaught, we believe that apart from Christ, people do stand condemned because of their sins. So when it comes to salvation through Christ, we Christians are exclusive. You have to know Christ to be saved. That's why our our church invests so much time in energy and money, for instance, in the lives of our children and youth. It's why it's why Paula and Tracy and myself spent so much time working with these young people who were baptized and confirmed teaching confirmation class. Because we believe that nothing less than heaven or hell hangs in the balance. If these young people today sincerely trusted in Christ, and if they continue to trust in him for the rest of their lives, they can be confident that nothing, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate them from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. They will have eternal life. But apart from Christ, we have no hope. We are dead in our trespasses. Indeed, we are bound for hell. So it's understandable that in our culture, which emphasizes being inclusive and tolerant and non-judgmental, that this senator would consider traditional Christian belief in the exclusivity of Christ intolerant. Narrow-minded, unloving, bigoted, hateful, and fearful. It's not fair. (laughs) We know that that's not what we're about. They're they're misjudging us. They're mischaracterizing us. But I'm sure that the people to whom the Apostle Peter is writing in today's scripture would know how we feel, even more so. They could relate to this because in their culture, do you know what opponents of Christianity were saying about these Christians? 
they were saying crazy, wild things like, those Christians are murderers and cannibals. I'm serious. That was a slander against the church because after all, these Christians talk about eating someone's body and drinking his blood, right? Through Holy Communion. Or they were saying things like these Christians would have these orgies and they would commit incest. I'm not making this up. Why? Well, they'd heard about these secret meetings that they called love feasts. And uh, it involved brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, this, again, this is incredibly unfair. And they're like completely misjudging what the church was all about. I mean, how, how were these Christians going to respond to these slanderous accusations? Well, Peter knows how they're going to respond. He says that they are going to witness to them through their actions. They are, in verse 12, going to live such good lives among the pagans that they, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on his day of visitation. I said last week that this day of visitation is Christ's second coming when the dead will be resurrected and we'll all face final judgment. Peter says that he wants Christians to live lives of such integrity, of such high moral character, lives characterized by by love and, and good deeds that it will, quote, silence the ignorance of foolish people, as he says in verse 15. But not only that, the way we live our lives, Peter says, will literally play an important role in bringing people into a saving relationship with God through Christ. So that these people who are now slandering Christ and slandering his followers will repent of their sins and turn to Jesus in faith so that on judgment day, They will indeed glorify God because they've repented and turned to him. Peter says we are to witness through our actions. And we have a lot of evidence in the ancient world that the early church, one reason why the Christian movement grew so explosively was because the church was bearing witness to Christ through their actions. For example, there's an early letter dated in the second century. Between a writer named Methodus, who is writing to a powerful Roman leader named Diognetus. Diognetus was a pagan. And here is what this writer said about Christians. He says, these Christians are, are indistinguishable from us in so many ways. They dress like us. They talk like us. They eat the same food as we do. They they pay taxes like us. They obey laws like us. In so many ways, their lives are, are the same as ours, except, and here I'm quoting directly from the letter, they marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. See, I I consider that in our nation that we have a crisis with abortion when over 20% of pregnancies are are terminated 
by abortion. But they had a problem with abortion back then, but even worse or just as bad, they, they had, uh, if you gave birth to a child and you did not want this child, and this happened often with, with, uh, with female children, it was perfectly legal and acceptable for you to take your child out to the city dump and leave it there to die of exposure. Not only did Christians not do that, they often rescued these babies who were abandoned in this way. The writer continues, they have a common table, but not a common bed, meaning they share their food with everyone, but they don't sleep around. Even back in the second century, the Christian sexual ethic was was countercultural in the extreme. He writes, they are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. These early Christians were making a name for themselves. They were famous for their commitment to the sacredness of human life, to sexual fidelity and to generosity. In fact, if you recall world history, you may remember that in the fourth century, uh, there was a Roman emperor named Constantine and he converted to Christianity. His mother was a Christian and she influenced him. He became a Christian and Pretty soon the empire, the Roman Empire, became officially Christian. And and Constantine was followed by a succession of emperors who were at least nominally Christian. With one exception, one of those emperors in line, uh, whose name was Julian, now he's called Julian the Apostate, he abandoned the Christian faith and he wanted to return the Roman Empire back to uh, a pagan nation. And he wanted his Roman citizens to worship the old Roman gods like Venus and Mars and Jupiter and all the others. But he realized that he had a problem and he wrote about the problem to a pagan priest. And we have this letter. He wrote, if we want to be successful in our effort to revive the worship of Roman gods, we're going to have to do something about the widows and orphans. Now, why did he say that? Because he said, Christians were taking care of widows and orphans and not just their own widows and orphans, he said, but but unbelievers, widows and orphans as well. No one in the history of the world had ever seen that kind of compassion, that kind of commitment to generosity and good works. Peter tells us here, That the Holy Spirit will use our behavior, our lifestyle, our generosity, our good deeds to win people to Christ. Of course, if you've heard me preach before, you know I'm the last person to to, uh, downplay the importance of also using words when we witness. You've got to have both words and actions. But but, But our actions play an important role. And that's exactly what 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 Carol Greer was describing earlier with this new initiative. As we go out into our community and we perform random acts of kindness to people, our community is not going to know what hit them. Please, brothers and sisters, take these cards, use them, put them to good use. Show our community what we at Hampton Methodist are all about. Let us be famous in our community for doing good deeds. Now, I said a couple of weeks ago, I don't want to preach any more of those 
try harder sermons. I don't want to preach a sermon in which the main theme is you need to try harder. You need to do better. You need to be more faithful. You need to be more generous. For one thing, those kinds of sermons don't work and they just make us feel guilty. Second, being a Christian isn't mostly about what we do. It's about who we are. It's about what's in here. If what's in here isn't right, it doesn't matter what we do. And Peter feels the same way. Remember, I've preached uh, so far in this letter. We've looked at him, him talk about how we Christians need to be People who are like infants who long for pure spiritual milk, who the the milk of God's word. We are people who have tasted that the Lord is good. We're, We're people who've experienced this amazing love of Christ and it's melted our hearts. We are people who have fallen in love with Jesus. So, of course, we'll do all these things that Peter and Paul and the apostles and Jesus tell us to do. Why wouldn't we? We're in love with Jesus. He's the most important thing to us. Of course we will. Remember back in the mid 80s, that movie Purple Rain starring Prince. He had a number of hit songs from that movie, but one of them went like this. The chorus went, you, I would die for you, right? I would die for you, he said to this woman that he loved. Well, of course he would. He's in love. If you have ever been in love, if you are in love right now, you know exactly what he means when he says, I would die for you. There's nothing special about that, I mean, because that's what being in love feels like. Of course we would die for the person we're in love with. Who wouldn't? If we are Christians, we are in love with Jesus Christ, or we ought to be. If we're not, I have to ask, are are you are you spending time in God's word? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you spending time coming to worship? Are you are you spending time serving the Lord? Are you spending time coming to the Lord's table for for the Lord's supper? Are you doing the things that 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 the Bible teaches us to do in order to grow closer to God? I mean, that's how we nurture and sustain this this love that we have for Jesus. And if we're not in love, it could be that that's why this love for Christ means, like the Prince song says, that we'll do anything for Christ, including what Peter says in verse 16. We will be slaves of God. Now, our English Standard Version translation translates it servants. Of God. Some translations say bond servants. It wants to distinguish what we Americans think of when we hear the word slave. And um, slavery in the first century was voluntary, it wasn't forced on people. Usually you had a debt. And you wanted to pay off a debt to someone. So you would willingly sell yourself into slavery. I'm not saying that the Bible condones even that form of slavery. But I am saying that it was 
a very different institution from the one that we think of when we hear that word. So I think that's why these uh, Bible translations soften the word uh, by saying servant instead. It's more like indentured servitude, if you remember that from American history class. But let's not minimize or water down the reality of what this word represents. The, the, The Greek word is doulos. It means we belong, as Christians, we belong entirely to God. We are his possession. It's as if God owns us and he paid for us with the precious blood of his son, Jesus. We exist now. The very reason we're here, we exist for him to love and to serve him and to glorify him. Our only interest in life is doing his will. Everything we have, our time, our talent, our money belongs to him. Everything we do, we do for him. I'm thinking of a Brian Adams hit song from the 80s, which is which, again, if we're in if we're in love with Jesus, I mean, these these love songs come to us, but but they're true. They ring true. If, If we're in love with Jesus, of course, everything that he asks us to do will do. So we are slaves to God, not against our will, but voluntarily, willingly, gladly, joyfully. And this is what we were created to be. In fact, Peter says something in verse 16, which on its face sounds like it might be a contradiction. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as slaves. Wait, wait. He's saying live as people who are free by being slaves to God. How is that possible? In Christ, you are truly free, Peter says. But to be truly free means that you are a slave to God. How, and let me give you an example to help make sense of this. As many of you know, we have a cat named Peanut. Peanut is 23 pounds, yes. Some of you love Peanut. You know Peanut. He's 23 pounds. He's quite... A whopper. Um, Peanut, as you can imagine, doesn't really do much of anything. Um, He sleeps most of the time, and he eats, um, and he purrs, and he shows his family a whole lot of love and affection. We love our cat. One thing that Peanut doesn't do ever is worry. When he finishes eating, for instance, and his food bowl is empty, He never thinks to himself, gosh, I wonder if the next time I get hungry and go to eat, someone will have filled that food bowl up. Where's my next meal going to come from? Or he doesn't look at that big bag of of Purina cat chow that that Billy has so graciously uh, given me, or given him, I should say, and and think to himself, hmm, that that bag of of cat chow is three quarters of the way empty. Uh, When that bag is gone... Are they going to replace it with another bag? Will I have more where that comes from? These thoughts, of course, never cross my cat's mind. And so he is just fat and happy all the time. He is completely free from worry, from stress, 
from anxiety. If it were possible to put into words what Peanut might think, I think it would sound something like this. My master knows what's best for me. My master will take care of me no matter what. I can depend on him completely. I can trust in him completely or trust in her or depend on her, depending on, you know, which master is taking care of him at that moment. As a result, my cat is free, free from the burdens of fear and anxiety that so often enslave us. You see, Peter talks about how we are to be slaves to God. And some of us Americans are thinking, well, we don't want to be slaves to anyone. But you see, we already are. Do you know there's like tens of millions of Americans who are who are taking medication right now for anxiety? Now, I'm not saying anything is wrong with seeing your doctor and getting a prescription if, if you need it. Not at all. But I'm saying that's a symptom of a problem. We are an anxious people. Where what's the solution ultimately to that? I, I, part of the solution is. Learning to trust in God, like, like my cat trust, trusts in his owners to take care of him. How does my cat achieve this kind of freedom? By, by having us as its owners. He is, in a way, our slave. He isn't free to do whatever he wants. But he is free to be exactly the kind of cat that God created him to be. And in exchange, he is deeply happy and content. What if we, what if we had that same attitude of complete dependence on our heavenly father? What if we could trust in him like that? What if we could say, I belong to my heavenly father. He will take care of me no matter what. I can depend on him completely. I can trust in him completely. So I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to worry. Well, as an example of someone who bore witness through her actions, we had a a profound example last week in our local news you might have heard about. There was a church bus from... um, Huntsville, Alabama, and it was bound for the Atlanta airport. It was filled with youth from a church, and they were on their way to Botswana in Africa. They were going on a mission trip. You know, our youth group goes on mission trips. They could have been just like our youth group. But before the bus arrived at the airport, there was an accident. The bus overturned. And one of the children, one of the youth, a 17-year-old named Sarah Harmoning, died in the accident. She is not unlike the youth that we confirmed and baptized today. She loves Jesus. Her parents spoke to the media, Channel 5, Channel 11, I saw it online, um, shortly after she died. And they talked about how she loved Jesus and they loved Jesus and they believed in Jesus and they trusted in him. And they, the mother in this amazing press conference, she invited the audience also 
to place their faith in Christ and to accept him as their Savior and Lord. It was beautiful. And she said, this was the very reason that my daughter was going to Botswana to share this good news. So I want to share it with you, she said. After the mother spoke, a friend of Sarah's got up to the podium and took out her phone and she read a text message that this young woman sent hours before she died. She quoted from 1 Peter, a scripture I preached on a few weeks ago. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Sarah went on to write, This is such a great reminder. We are like a wisp of smoke. We are only here for a moment And this is not about us. Life is not about us. It's about God who is eternal. So I want to dedicate the one moment I'm here completely and entirely to him. And so she did for that one moment she was here. Will we dedicate the one moment in light of eternity, the one moment that we're here on this earth to our Lord and Savior, to completely and entirely, completely and entirely to him? Undoubtedly, many people who watched the news, heard this report, saw the press conference, they would have thought this is a terrible tragedy. The life of the 17 year old cut short. Before the prime of her life, I mean, the word tragedy was invented to describe just this kind of situation. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. How can it be a tragedy when you, a beloved child of God, servant of God, slave of God, Someone who's given your life to do nothing but to serve God in every way possible. When you die doing the very thing that God has called you to do. How how can it be a tragedy when the next moment after death you hear your Lord say to you, Well done, good and faithful doulos, slave, servant. I hope, I hope I, I hope I live and die doing exactly what my Lord has called me to do. And if I do, I promise you, it will not be a tragedy. Almighty God, we are inspired by the examples of saints who live and die doing what you call them to do. We pray your blessings on Sarah's family, comfort them and encourage them in their loss. It is perfectly good for us to grieve when a loved one dies, but if they die, As a believer in Christ, we can be confident we'll see them again. And if we have that confidence that death is really not the end, ought we not to have 
the confidence to live our lives boldly for you and your son Jesus. Let your Holy Spirit empower us to do that. Beginning right now, if if we haven't already started, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll feel free to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We are on West Main Street in downtown Hampton, and we have two worship services. We have a 9 o'clock acoustic contemporary service and an 11 o'clock traditional service. Hope to see you there.